You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in. Why did you join the organization? What attracted you? Yeah, I came to App Harvest because of the mission. And pretty much anyone here you ask that, you're going to get the same response. Mission, purpose, you know, believe in what the company is trying to do. And um, most of my career had been automotive. And so I had worked in automotive around the world, uh, including France, including Japan. And at the height of COVID, um, this, this company that I had never heard of reached out and said, Hey, the CEO would like to talk to you. And I'm like, what? I, what? What is this all about? And so he called and the first thing he said to me was, I hear you're Appalachian. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. And what does that have to do with what you know what what you have to ask me? And he said, let me tell you what I'm trying to do for Appalachia because App Harvest is a B Corp. It is uh, organized. It's a public benefit corporation. And so while we're trying to farm more sustainably, getting far more produce using far fewer resources, we're also trying to create good jobs in central Appalachia. I grew up in East Tennessee, so that was a mission that really appealed to me. Yeah. And, and can you share just a little bit of the origin of the organization, too? Because I think that's a pretty fascinating story, too. And I'm sure that was probably part of those early conversations was hearing where the idea came about, what was the problem you were setting out to solve? It's a it's a good story. I'd love to love to hear it again. Yeah, you bet. So our founder and CEO is a fellow named Jonathan Webb. Jonathan had gotten into renewable energy and was uh, overseeing some of the largest renewable energy projects, uh, particularly solar installations, for the Department of Defense in the Southeast. So when he was in D.C. at that point, energy resilience. Um, was was what everyone was talking about. Uh, and so he started digging a little bit deeper and he said, you know, as important as energy is, civilization crumbles quickly when you don't have a reliable food source. And so food security was much more top of mind for a lot of areas of the world. And a lot of people had taken the U.S. food security situation for granted for a long time. So the more he dug into it, he um, found out that the Netherlands, of all places, which has a geographic size of about eastern Kentucky, is one of the top exporters of food in the world. And how the heck do they do that? They do it through greenhouse technology. And so we're not talking, you know, necessarily just like hoop houses that are plastic, you know, covering dirt and extending the season a little bit. These are what we refer to as controlled environment agriculture facilities. So he took that idea, did it at a U.S.-sized scale with the latest technology, and that was the genesis of App Harvest. I think that's something that most people, I certainly didn't know this, um, of basically how far, I mean, I guess you'd say how far we are behind in terms of of that type of growing technology. I mean, um, the country you just mentioned has like, you know, like, what is the difference? I mean, it, it yeah. is not even close, right? Yeah. So um, Europe right now, so so it's estimated that the United States has maybe about 6,000 acres under glass. So um, we just quadrupled our farm network last year. And so we've got about 165 of those acres. But you compare that to Europe, 
Europe has more than 500,000 acres under glass. So we're significantly underbuilt based on that. And so what was the impetus for the Netherlands to do this? Um, and it was World War II. During World War II, their supply lines got cut and a significant percentage of their population starved and they made it a national priority to say, we will be able to feed our own population uh, if anything like this happens again. And so they started developing uh, this high-tech greenhouse technology that we have adopted. When you, in conversation with folks, do you, does that come up? Do you bring that up? Because, it, you know, they may say, well, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. There's no precedent for this. We haven't seen this before. And you're like, no, there is. I mean, is it a useful comparison? Yes, uh, it, it is. When you're able to say, hey, this isn't some wild cockamamie idea that hasn't been proved out. It is something that's been proved out over generations in Europe. So it's something that we're doing with the latest technology, and we're doing it at a, a significantly larger scale for the most part. Um, but this is, is basic technology transfer that we were able to take from the Netherlands that, that has been proved out already. Yeah. So why Appalachia? I mean, you could do this in a number of places. Why, why is that the ideal spot uh, for your team? So a number of advantages to Appalachia. Number one, Jonathan Webb is from the area and he wanted to do something that could create jobs in an area that really needed them. So our farms are in some of the most economically distressed counties of Appalachia to, to create opportunity. Um, there's also a geographic advantage because central Appalachia is within 70% of the U.S. population within about a day's drive. That was one of the things that made coal so successful in Kentucky, not just that they had deposits. There were lots of areas of the United States that had deposits, but that they could transport it to major urban centers efficiently and quickly. And so when you're talking about a perishable good like fruits and vegetables, there are many advantages to being able to get that out as well. So in some cases, we can pick it, pack it, have it on grocery store shelves within about a 24-hour period. That's great. And I think last time we talked, you you mentioned the water source too. That is that another component? Yes. With changing weather patterns, uh, as some of our traditional growing areas in the United States, like the extreme Southwest, uh, get drier, um, there are other areas like central Appalachia that are getting wetter. So we tend to have really good precipitation. And we work first with Appalachian sunshine and Appalachian rainwater. So the the huge we have these huge roofs that you know are glass. So we take as much solar as we possibly can. That's uh, a special technology so that it's uh, the glass is diffused so that each plant gets its fair share of light. Uh, and then that same roof captures rainwater. Um, our flagship farm uh, is in Moorhead, Kentucky, and that's a sixty acre farm, and it has a retention pond that is the size of seventy Olympic swimming pools. I think for every two inches of rain we get, we collect about a million gallons of water in that pond. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it's an amazing operation to think about. I mean, your background is, you know, you can basically see the operation and I'm looking at it. And I'm just thinking, man, this, there's so much that goes into it. Uh, what, what were some of the like big hurdles to get past in kind of the early days? Because this is not a capital light uh, endeavor, right? Like, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of capital involved in it. There's going to be a lot of different factors to evaluate. Like what, what were some of those big hurdles that you're proud to say that you've 
cleared or are clearing uh, to this point. Right. These are high-tech indoor farms, and they're massive if you get an opportunity to look at them. So and we have pretty good images, video and photography, if you go on to appharvest.com and take a look. And uh, so the construction and the construction, COVID hit us during the construction uh, of the very first farm. So that was a challenge, but it was a challenge that that's another benefit of being in Appalachia is access to a workforce that has the tenacity and the faith and the grit to get big projects like this done and not to stop. Uh, so we were able to, to move through that, uh, but they are capital intensive. Um, and so these are big construction projects. When Moorhead opened, I believe Moorhead was in the top 10 buildings by volume in the world. So that's the type of size that we're talking about here. And then we quickly moved uh, from just that one farm into constructing three more farms that we got opened just last year in 2022. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's a, it's a huge, I mean, yeah, it's just a huge undertaking and, and it's working, right? It's, uh, what are, what are, I mean, what are some of those like success measures that you use to kind of evaluate like, Hey, this, this is working. I mean, you've mentioned a few, I mean, uh, not just that what you grow and the efficiency of that, but also the jobs you're providing. I mean, what, what is success in your guys' book? Yeah. So, so again, so based on United Nation reports, they think that we need to grow about 50 to 70% more food by 2050 to meet the demands of a growing population. So right now, 70% of all fresh water already is dedicated to agriculture. Hmm. That means we would either need a second planet Earth to be able to fill those needs, or we're going to have to learn how to grow far more with far fewer resources. So this method allows us to use about 90% less water than open field agriculture um, because we use a closed loop irrigation system. That also allows us to do precision dosing of nutrients. So where open field agriculture uh, tends to apply uh, a lot of fertilizer, uh, we can use a fraction of what's required uh, and really monitor it and make sure that uh, it circulates through the system until the plants need it and it's actually used. Some of the most noxious greenhouse gases come from overproduction and overapplication of fertilizer in open field environments which then can leach into the freshwater systems, making them less usable for other um, needs as well. So those are some of the advantages we have. We also can do a lot of production on a relatively small footprint. So even though this building is giant, um, we can get about 30 times the production out of it uh, compared to the same amount of open field agriculture land. Uh, and we can do that year round. So now we very much, we, we love our soil farmers. We believe they absolutely are needed. It's just that we're going to have to produce so much food over the next couple of decades that we're going to need every tool in the arsenal to be able to meet those needs. And the U.S. currently is relying on about two-thirds of its fruit and vegetable production being imported. So we saw an opportunity not only to make a more um, resilient domestic food system to ensure food security, but also an opportunity to create jobs and to create an, agricult an agricultural hub here in central Appalachia that could compete nationally and internationally. Yeah. When you're talking with people, are they surprised to learn about the, the level of import that we rely on right now? Or 
Is that a surprise or do they expect that? People, I think most people have no idea. So mm-hmm. it's really going to require a lot more consumer education and a consumer movement to really change this. So we engaged in a thought leadership campaign that we called Fight the Food Fight. And it really challenged people to say, hey, when you sit down with your families tonight, take a look at your dinner plate and ask, do I know where this food came from? Do I know the effect its production had on people and planet? Did they pay fair wages? Did they treat the soil the way it should have been? Did they use more water than was necessary? How many food miles did it actually travel to get to my plate? Do I know what kind of pesticides were used uh, in this production? So people started to get more familiar with their food during COVID because they had the time to. They were staying in. Mm -hmm. They were cooking on their own. They were paying more attention to ingredients. They started to read some labels. Uh, And so then, so, so people did start to develop more of an appreciation but we're really just scraping the surface for where we need to be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there is a, a group of people who care about every factor you just mentioned, you know, where it's from, the wage, the miles traveled, uh, but it's still a very small percentage right now. But they that they exist and and they are starting to create enough noise that people are coming up with certifications and different things to be able to communicate that to where a bit larger percentage of customers and and buyers will will start to pay attention to those things. So I do think it's coming and it, it just needs to get easier for people to to learn. Right now you have to like really sit down and read a handful of books to like grasp the the understanding of it, right? Yeah. And I think we deal with a lot of latent fears in this category too, because when you go to the grocery store and you bring home your fruits and vegetables, what's one of the first things you do before you use them? Yeah, wash them off. Yeah. So, and everybody does that. And I think in the back of their mind, they really wonder, did I really, did I really do anything? Did I really get them clean? What was on them to begin with? And then you just suppress that because you think I don't have any alternative. I did my part. I'm worried that it didn't make a difference, but I'm not going to think about it because I don't have an alternative. Well, you do have an alternative. You can support folks who minimally use any of those pesticides and avoid the harshest chemical pesticides um, because they're growing in a different way, a more sustainable way. That's great. Do you, so you mentioned that we'll go back to the Netherlands. You said they've been doing it since, you know, basically world war II, they had a really strong reason motivation to do it. So there has been basically the means to do this for decades uh, my assumption is is that just in the most recent decade, that has probably really accelerated in terms of the different technologies that can be implemented. Is is that right, or are you using are you using technology that's existed for a long period of time, or are there some new things with whether it be fertilizer or um, pesticides or the light sources? I, I have no clue. I'm just spouting off stuff, but I'm yeah. guessing that there's stuff that makes it so much more efficient to where you can get that 30x on what you're able to grow. Yeah, there are advancements all the time. So, you know, mm-hmm. one of our big technologies is not necessarily anything newfangled. The closed loop irrigation system is a key enabler, but other things like the lighting. So we start with nature first and then boost it with technology where we need to. So um, so we use as much sunshine as possible. When we need to, we boost that with uh, traditional and LED grow lights. 
Well, the LED grow lights are 40% more energy efficient than the traditional ones. And so there are developments like that that are making the opportunity to make these farming operations more sustainable all the time. Um, also, regarding automation, our tech team likes to call our flagship farm Moorhead a 60-acre robot because it's so highly automated. So our master growers can basically go in and say, hey, for this crop, I want it to be on this lighting schedule. I want it to be at this temperature. I want it to have this level of humidity. Uh, and so that can be programmed in. And there are 300 microclimate sensors throughout that particular farm that can constantly adjust and open windows and turn on lights and turn off lights uh, to, to help achieve the ultimate outcome. Because it's all about optimizing for plant health, which then optimizes production. And that's the big holy grail in agriculture is being able to forecast what your product, your production is going to be and what your quality of that production is going to be. Yeah, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that you've got partnerships or people are requesting partnerships with you because you've got this sort of technological playground that, you know, has so much control uh, versus, you know, Mother Nature, where it's just wildly unpredictable. I mean, is that the case or? Our founder and CEO started with a 17-member um, organization um, that had partners that were a combination of folks in the United States, universities specifically in Kentucky, uh, universities in the Netherlands in this space uh, to facilitate the technology transfer to be able to say, hey, we really want to create a full ecosystem here that supports one another. Um, we also have engaged in um, something that we call growing the next generation of farmers and futurists. So we have supported 12 high-tech hydroponic classrooms in area high schools to teach students agriculture from the ground up. So they get these what we refer to as container farms that are retrofitted shipping containers with high-tech hydroponic equipment. So they learn everything from seeding to propagating the plant to harvesting it, to deciding if they're going to sell it to their school system or sell it in a local health food store or contribute it to neighbors and other students in need. Uh, and then all the way through the, the culinary aspect too. So if kids aren't interested in agriculture and many of them come from small farms where it's really hard to make ends meet and to make a profit, they may tell you they have zero interest in becoming a farmer or in agriculture but then when they get introduced to this method of growing and they understand, wow, in this little container space, I can get the equivalent of three to five acres while I control it with my tablet or with my iPad, you know, my iPhone. Then they're like, hey, I am interested in that. I'm interested in the tech part or I'm interested in the marketing part. So um, we are just now starting to have some folks come, some students from that high school program uh, pursue degrees in agriculture and then come back and intern with us too. That's awesome. I, I love how long-term of a vision that is, is, I mean, cause as this grows, you, you're going to need, there's going to be a demand for, you know, people who can operate in that environment and you're already starting, uh, at such a young age. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I mean, the truthful thing is, is I grew up in a farming community. Um, if you were not inheriting land, you didn't have many opportunities to become a farmer. So in right. fact, the, the the way things had, had developed, if you had interest, you you couldn't almost. So this almost feels like um, 
it's a different avenue. It's a different avenue and a different method. Um, and then what that really is accessible to anybody who has interest in it. Yeah, lots of different types of opportunities within agriculture. And then it goes back to what we mentioned before. We're going to need every tool in the arsenal to be able to, to meet those needs. Yeah. So what are you growing? Oh, so we started with tomatoes because tomatoes are the number one import that comes into the United States out of Mexico. Uh, and then we expanded last year. And so now we have a salad greens farm. The salad greens farm can grow about 35 million uh, lettuce plants at a time uh, when it's fully ramped up. And those renew every three to four weeks. We have two tomato facilities, um, Moorhead and Richmond, which are basically a, a copy paste of one another. They can handle about 1.5 million tomato plants. And we handle a, a variety of different types from big beef steaks to Campari to snacking tomatoes. Um, we have a strawberry farm in Somerset, Kentucky, that can grow about a million strawberry plants at a time. Strawberries don't like it when it gets too hot in the summer, so we are alternating that right now with long English cucumbers. Uh, and so that's our diversified crop portfolio now. That's great. So it sounds like some of these plants are able to grow year-round, whereas otherwise that would you know not be possible, right? Yes, exactly. So... Um, for the tomato plants, the tomato plants, we need to do a summer refresh. So when open field agriculture is coming online is when we tend to go offline uh, and we start the new plants. So we do a complete refresh uh, of the farm, start the new plants, and then they start to produce in the fall. Uh, and then they will run for about 10 months or so. Uh, but then things like the, the strawberries, uh, we'll run several months and then we'll switch in the summer to cucumbers, but those can pretty much grow year round. And so can the the salad greens uh, in our Berea farm. I, okay. I'm an outsider to this. I don't fully understand, but just as a novice, I can think of three things of why that would be important. One, if you're growing constantly, you can constantly be tweaking and optimizing of the you know inputs and that type of thing to get the best output. So you're learning faster than others would in a controlled environment. So that seems like a big advantage. Two, um, prices fluctuate based on the seasonality and availability of, of this food. And so that could potentially level off uh, prices for consumers. And then three, I used to work in a produce section, a grocery store. There used to be a lot of like wax and stuff on you know, plants and, or, uh, you know, vegetables and fruits because it was traveling from who knows where and needed to last for a long period of time. So there's potentially like, you know, that last uh, step potentially could get to market a little bit quicker and, and not have to try to preserve it for so long in some cases where it's going to uh, do that. So, I, I mean, that's my first thoughts on that. I don't know if that aligns with what you guys think about, but uh, as I yeah. hear it, that's what I'm thinking of. Yes. Every, you, you get an A plus. Everyone. Okay, good. Valid. <laughs> And uh, so those are, are all all great reasons that um, controlled environment agriculture, CEA, is popular and is increasingly popular among some of the top national grocery store chains. We sell into the top 25 grocery store chains, also to fast food, some fast food restaurants and, and other restaurants uh, and food service outlets. What they like about it is it diversifies their supply line. It shortens food miles for them. It's U.S. grown, and then they get consistent quantity and quality. Yeah, um, with with that as well. Yeah, that's great. Do you? We also, whenever... 
we're also able to operate in an environment that generally um, uses far fewer um, pesticides or chemicals. Yeah. Because we use a technique um, in controlled environment referred to as integrated pest management. So in a nutshell, it's using good bugs to take care of bad bugs. And we use what we refer to as human scouts to go out and look for any plant health issues or pest infestations to nip them in the bud uh, when they're small so that you don't have to, to use as many uh, harsh chemicals uh, as, as some environments need to. Yeah, I think that's important. What's an example of like a good bug? Um, let's see. I, it's not my area. And now I'm starting to ask. <laughs> I'm not great. Yeah, you're pulling the scientist. You're, yeah, you're getting a little uh, a little beyond me. I think we've got something called. Um, there are. I yeah no. You I'm probably have you probably trouble. have bees. You probably have bees. We do use pollination. Bees. We do use yeah. bees as pollinators. Yes. yes yeah. So well, there's some. We'll bring in the agronomist next. They they are super hard workers. The bees, if the if the lights are on, they will continue to work. So uh, we actually have to shut the little hive uh, at night so that they go in and get a little bit of shut eye. Otherwise, if the lights are on, they'll continue to work. Uh, that's hilarious. Uh, whenever you're talking with people and you're explaining what you do, um, I have a feeling if they haven't seen it, it's probably hard for them to visualize. And they're probably ref thinking of like small scale greenhouses or the, or maybe vertical farming that they've heard about. Like, what are some of those misconceptions or how do you like, help them understand, no, no, this is really what App Harvest is about. Yeah, I usually ask them, uh, you know, who who the best tomato whisperer in the room is. And then uh, like, you always have a few people who, you know, even if they're in an urban environment, will grow tomato plants on their patio. So, um, so you know, I'm like, how many, how many productive trusses do you have? How tall do your plants get? Most people say three to five feet. Uh, and so then I explain, okay, imagine nearly three quarters of a million of those plants on a single farm that are indeterminate. So they grow 10 months or so out of the year and get to be 30, 35 feet tall. That's what we're talking uh, on the, the scale of difference. That's amazing. Um, your, your, the journey that App Harvest has been on, it seems very accelerated to me as an outsider. It just feels like you've been able to accomplish so much in what seems like a very short period of time. And I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Do you, are you ever amazed at what you guys have already accomplished at this point? Like, how, how would you like discuss? Like, how would you sort of classify the journey, or how would you describe the journey that you're on and where you're going? Yes, it it has been super accelerated. It's been really fast. And our CEO and founder Jonathan Webb is quick to attribute that to the region. We mm -hmm. had a region of folks who want to work for the enterprise uh, and of folks in the region who want to support it. So we're really helpful uh, in pushing through all of the permitting that was needed, all of the support, all the infrastructure that was needed to help get these farms up and running. And so it, it's really a tribute to the region saying we, we can do this. Yeah, it's so true because if you don't have participation there and people don't, you know, it's everybody wants to debate it, it's nothing's going to happen, right? So you really do have to have kind of the lanes cleared in some ways for for this to happen. So that is great. Do you as you look forward are there things on the horizon that you would predict or definitely know are coming or, you know, that type of thing of like where you see this going uh either for the industry or for app, app harvest specifically? 
Yeah, well, we really see controlled environment agriculture as needing to be the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. If you consider the first wave to be renewable energy, the second to be the popularization of electric vehicles, which is continuing now, um, really to address the United States food security issues, uh, domestic food security issues, we see um, additional support for CEA and more CEA being leveraged uh, as, as needing to be that that next wave that uh, that everyone gets behind uh, to to help secure that. Yeah, and do you think do you feel like there's momentum there, or you or you be you're hungry for more momentum? We we're always hungry for more momentum. So we uh, bit off a lot that we're working to chew right now by quadrupling the farm network just last year. So we're focused on core operations to get the four farm network uh, to be as productive as possible. Uh, and then our original aspiration was to get to a network of, of 12 of these farms to really benefit from that scale. Uh, but we do see lots of opportunity out there. We do get asked, you brought up vertical farming a little bit earlier, we do get asked about the difference uh, sometimes. And um, most definitions of vertical farming are black box or warehouse farming that are all artificial inputs, generally municipal water and 100% uh, artificial lighting. And so we do benefit from having the hybrid of starting with nature first and then boosting it with technology uh, and growing on a very large scale. A lot of those vertical farms are uh, a few acres or a fraction of an acre versus the 165 acres that we have under glass right now. Yeah, we you know we we know folks in vertical farming. It seems like a cool thing. Um, the advantages, I guess, would be just proximity has got to be the biggest one. Um, it almost seems to me, as again an outsider, that they get more buzz because of where they're located. You know, it's oh that's happening here. That's almost unbelievable. Uh, whereas what you're doing is like a whole different scale, uh, yet you still have proximity. It's not the same level of proximity, but also the right. scale of what you're achieving is like completely different. So uh, it almost seems like they, they get a lot of attention in the press just because where they're located. But uh, what you're doing is uh, it's a game changer in comparison, it seems like. Yeah, you you really nailed it. And again, it goes back to um each of these applications has its purpose yep. and it's making sure that you're using the the right one uh, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, uh, Travis, for you personally, what's been the most rewarding part of being uh, with App Harvest? It's, it's the story of the folks who are working with us. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual um, if I just go through the farm and chat with folks to find people who used to travel an hour to the nearest city to do a hospitality job for maybe four hours uh, at a time. And then they come back and say, this is the first time I've ever had a job that I didn't have to leave home for uh, and that I had benefits. And some of these folks are 50 plus years old and it's the first time that they have worked for a company that has been able to provide them benefits. So creating that type of opportunity with a longer term vision to try to make sure that that this is a generational opportunity, uh, that that it's not a flash in the pan, but something that can really develop into a regional ecosystem for agriculture is is the part that 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 still tugs at my heartstrings. Yeah, I mean, it really does seem like a full ecosystem, which um, 
you know, we talk to a lot of brands that are doing amazing things. Uh, but this is this is probably the most integrated in terms of where it is, what it's doing, and the benefit uh, to everybody around it. It's really impressive. We um we we really try to hit the full spectrum on ESG from the environmental, you know, to the social, to the governance part. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm going to encourage everybody who's listening to to check out App Harvest, even out of just curiosity. Where would you say is a good place to to point them? AppHarvest.com. And if you go to our media site, we've got some clips there from uh, folks who have gotten collected some great video and told some great stories for us. So that might be a good place to start. Everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series, and we've put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.